For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're looking at Romans 12, 9 through 21, which I entitled Love in Action. Now, it might be good for us to do a little review. Last week, we talked about this metaphor that Paul gives called the body of Christ, and it's expressed succinctly in Romans 12, verse 4 and 5, where Paul says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So he talks about how believers in Christ are organically linked to one another, that we have this special kind of unity that comes from our relationship with Christ that doesn't change based on our common experiences or based on our interests, like you see people forming in clusters around in the world, but instead our union with Christ serves as a basis for our union with one another. That God, through his Holy Spirit, actually places us in his spiritual community and that because of that, we are united with one another. So that's a really amazing thing because when you look out into our culture today, one of the things that people long for desperately is this idea of unity. And yet the Bible promises that we don't have to strive to create a sense of unity, but that God actually gives to us this unity through Christ. Now last week we talked a little bit about some elements that corrode community. And once we get through those, those corrosive elements and we can actually find ourselves in community, that's not enough. That isn't guarantee that we're going to actually have a healthy community, we actually need to do something, that there, we have to play our part. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, let go and let God, right? The story is that in the 19th century, a young man who was at a university decided that he was going to write, let God, on six little cards and hang it up on his wall and a strong wind blew through his his dorm room and knocked off the D at the end and he put the pieces together let go and so that's where he came up with the term let go and let God now that might be helpful to some people and there may be an element of truth to that saying but I think that it's an overstatement that God plays his part he plays a big part But that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't play our part or that human agency is unimportant in Christian community. So we want to talk a little bit about what it means to play our part. And God says that really at the center of Christian community is this concept of sacrificial love that God himself demonstrated. Paul begins in Romans 12, verse 9 through 11, love must be sincere Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever read this section before, but it's like a list of imperatives. I mean, Paul just basically empties the clip of imperatives on us. And it's kind of overwhelming to look through this list. But one way to look at this is that God is basically giving us sort of a picture of what community should look like. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on each one of these, but first of all, he says love must be sincere. And the word sincere literally means without hypocrisy. You know, in the ancient world, the Greek word for unsincere or insincere is uh, hypocrites, which literally meant play actor. And so uh, what hypocrisy really represents is presenting one picture to the public and showing yourself to be a different person behind the scenes. So that's really the essence of hypocrisy. And what Paul says is that when it comes to love, this idea of God's love, agape in Greek, that it should be something that's sincere, that it shouldn't be hypocritical, like you often see in some churches where people pretend to be very loving and yet it's all just sort of a front. It's not real. John Murray says, if love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy, the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to bring these two things together. So really, when we talk about a loving community that's centered on God's sacrificial love, his agape love, then we're talking about something that is without hypocrisy. He also says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now these seem like they're two ways of saying the same thing. But Paul is saying that as you grow in community, there should be this sense that you are becoming more and more morally sensitized. If you're anything like me, when you first came into Christian community, you were surprised at the things that God was actually saying, this is wrong, because you've been doing it all your life. And so one of the things that you'll see as a mark of your your spiritual growth within community is that there's this sense of morality that's growing within you, this sense of justice. But also that we adopt the things that are good, that we adopt God's values, and that that actually becomes an outworking in our life. Now, I think some people uh, look at God's forgiveness and they say, well, if you know, if God has forgiven us for all of the things we've ever done, past, present, and future, then isn't that really sort of like him handing us a license to go out and do whatever we want? I mean, after all, if our salvation really, really isn't on the line, then we get a free ticket to, do, to live it up, do whatever we want. I remember reading this story in the Christian author and theologian D.A. Carson's book, For the Love of God. And uh, he describes how when he was getting his uh, master's, that he developed a really close friendship with this West African man who was pursuing his doctoral studies in engineering. And he learned from spending some time with this guy that his wife actually lived in London while he was pursuing his degree here in the States. 
So as he got to know this guy, he started to notice that on the weekends, this guy would, would venture off into these red light districts and pick up prostitutes. So Carson said that at one point he felt like his conscience was sort of nudging him to talk to this guy who was a Christian about his moral compromise. And so he said, what do you think your wife would do? Or what, do you, what would you do if you found out that your wife was having an adulterous affair while, she, while you were away at school? And to Carson's surprise, he said, oh, easy. I would kill her. And Carson said, well, why do you think it's all right for you then to go and venture off and sleep with prostitutes? And he said, well, where I come from in West Africa, the man can sleep with whoever he wants. But if, a, if his wife does that, then she must be killed. And so Carson pointed out this discrepancy. He said, look, you grew up in a missionary school all of your life, and you were taught that God doesn't hold double standards. And he said, the man said to him, well, uh, you see, God, he's a good God, and he's bound to forgive me. That's what he's there for. And I think that sort of represents sort of the mentality that maybe we carry into the Christian life where we feel like God is good and it's really his job to forgive us for the things that we've done wrong. And yet, one of the things that God says is that once we experience a new relationship with him, there's incredible freedom from the bondage, the slavery of our moral wrongdoing that takes over our lives. You know, many of us come into the Christian life with tons of addictions Lots of relational problems, struggles that have damaged not only us, but also the people around us. And it doesn't really make sense for us to experience that freedom then to just go back to that old way of life. So one of the things that you'll see within a healthy Christian community is that there is this desire to do good. Also, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Now, in verse 9, Paul uses the Greek word agape, which is typically used to denote God's sacrificial love, exemplified in what Jesus Christ did on the cross by sacrificing himself for us. But then he uses two different Greek words for love here in verse 10, be devoted, which is sort of talking about a familial love in Greek, something that you would describe of the love that you have for your mother, your father. And then he uses another word uh, for love here at the end where he uses the word Philadelphia, which we're familiar with, brotherly love. So one of the things that God says is the kind of love that we experience is a love that, that you would share with your family. And that's not uncommon. You know, when, when you come to Christ, one of the things you'll notice is that as you build community with other people, that these people become like your family in a way, especially for those of us who have grown up in dysfunctional, broken homes, the love and warmth that we experience in Christian community can sort of make up for some of the deficiencies that we've experienced in life. Paul also says, honor one another above yourselves. Now, if you remember in Romans 12, verse 3, he says, you shouldn't 
Look, your, look at yourself or view yourself more highly than you ought to. Instead, you should regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, it seemed a little bit redundant for him to say that and then to repeat it again in verse 10. Honor one another above yourselves. Some translations actually add sort of a competitive element to this. That we should outdo one another in showing honor. You know, as opposed to what you typically see out in the world today where people are constantly vying for attention and praise and recognition, looking to tear down their rivals in order to make sure that the people around them will heap praise upon themselves. In God's community, one of the things that we should do is we should outdo one another in showing honor for one another. That we should speak highly of one another in community. That it should be a community that is positive. Not one that is filled with criticism. Not one that is just filled with people who are tearing one another down. I remember when I first came around many years ago when I was 19. I had a lot of baggage that I was dragging into this community. I had a lot of problems. I did a lot of things to myself that created damage. And one of the things that was so surprising about this community was just how positive people were, even though they knew all the things that I had done. The fact that they had this vision for me that I couldn't even see for myself, they were able to see the potential, and more more importantly, they were able to see the spiritual hunger that I had, and they wanted to develop that in me. So that's one of the characteristics that we should see of a spiritual community that's healthy and growing is that it's a positive community where people are flourishing, where people feel encouraged, people feel spurred on to grow in their spiritual lives. Also, he says, never be lacking in zeal. Now, when you think about religious enthusiasm, I think most people think of fanaticism. And when you think of fanaticism or religious enthusiasm, a lot of times it's sort of this mindless sort of group think that, that gets everybody excited. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. In fact, he differentiates this kind of zeal that's really an excitement and a determination to follow God and his truth because he says in Romans 10 verse 2, for I can testify about these people that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So to be enthusiastic, to have zeal for God doesn't mean throwing your brain out the door or the window, but it's, it's a zeal, it's an excitement, a determination that's centered upon God and his truth. Now, I think that zeal can look different in different people's lives. You know, typically when you think about somebody who's enthusiastic, you think of someone who's really outgoing, real boisterous. They're always yelling. You know, when you're sitting in conversation and hanging out, they're the ones who are screaming. You barely hear your own voice, let alone the thoughts in your head. Now, that is zeal. That is excitement, and that's good, right? I mean, you don't want to sit in a community of people where it's just really drab and nobody's excited about things. But at the same time, there are some people who may not be geared that way. And for those people, I think that zeal and excitement means sort of a a determination, an intensity. 
that isn't really outward, but something that you sense about this person in their pursuit of God. He goes on in verse 12 through 16 to say, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. So we're not going to unpack all that. There's just too much to to unpack there. But I think a few things that I'd like to highlight here is, first of all, that this is a community that meets the needs of those who are impoverished. That there isn't a class system within the body of Christ where you have the haves and the have-nots because of what they, what they, their socioeconomic standing. But instead, those who have should contribute to the needs of those who do not have. Also, he says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You know, many of us have experienced tragedy in our lives. And as, as a believer in Christ, we need to be able to learn how to grieve with those who are grieving, to enter into their suffering. That may be very difficult for some of us. I know as a young person, it was very difficult for me to go and visit my friend who was dying of cancer at age 22, to walk into his room and see him tied to tubes and and different monitors, to see him waste away. But it was my obligation out of love to show up even though I had, didn't have anything to say, even though I had nothing to offer. Guess what? The people who are suffering and grieving, they often don't want to hear platitudes from you anyway. They don't want to hear you talk. Most of the time when we talk in those situations, we put our foot in our mouth. And so we need to be able to enter into people's grief, sit with them, be with them, Really what Paul is talking about is those who are strong in their faith at this moment serving and meeting those who are weak in faith, who are struggling and loving them. Um, I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer sort of describes this balance within community in his book Life Together. He says, the bearing of one another's burdens will prove especially difficult where varying strength and weakness of faith are bound together in fellowship. The weak must not judge the strong. The strong must not despise the weak. The weak must guard against pride, the strong against indifference. None must seek his own rights. If the strong person falls, the weak must guard his heart against malicious joy at his downfall. If the weak falls, the strong one must help him rise again in all kindness. The one needs as much patience as the other. Woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. It's a beautiful picture of community. And, you know, it's important for us to see that Bonhoeffer is not sort of categorizing certain types of people as weak. It's not like a static quality that you hold for your entire life. But there are, there are phases of life where we experience weakness because of struggles we go through or because of circumstances that enter our lives. And so in community, God wants us to be able to support one another in love. He also says in verse 13 and 14, 
that going beyond loving one another, he says that we should also love people outside of the community as well. He says, practice hospitality. Now, when we think of hospitality, we typically think about this in sort of a narrow way, where hospitality is like opening up your house to people, maybe buying some food and hosting a dinner gathering, maybe having people who are from out of town stay at your house. And that is, is biblical hospitality because, you know, in the ancient world, there weren't that many inns and most of the inns that were within a city were sort of unsavory places for people to stay. And so it was important for Christians to actually open up their house and let people come and stay with them. But this idea of hospitality, though it includes opening up your home, means much more than that. This word hospitality actually is the word philoxenia, and it comes from two root words, phileo, which means to love, and then xenos, which means stranger or sojourner. So literally, you must love xenos. <laughs> and, you know, when, when God talks about hospitality, what he's talking about is a love for outsiders, people who are different than us, right? One of the amazing things that you read about in the gospel accounts about Jesus was that he actually spent most of his time with prostitutes and tax collectors who were like sort of the outcasts of society because they were actually working for the Romans, collecting money from their own people. And the religious leaders were scandalized that Jesus would spend all of this time with the lower caste of society. So much so that they actually accused him of being a drunkard and a person who was into loose living. So why did Jesus decide to spend so much time with people who are of this caste or class within his society? It's because he possessed this quality of philoxenia. He loved those who were different than him. Now, it goes even really further than this. It's not just that we practice hospitality or love for outsiders when they come through our doors, but actually this word practice, it's stronger than just simply practicing it when there are opportunities that arise. It's actually that we should pursue people who are different than us, that we should love them. You know, therefore, Christian followers should develop a heart for people who don't know God. That's one of the crucial ethics that should be developing in your life, that there is a growing love for people who don't know God, that this is not all about just trying to love one another and making our lives better, but you know, God has given us this community to, to shine as a light in a dark world that we live. You know, there are some interesting examples because the disciples, they were a product of their time and their culture. They were locked into this tribalistic way of thinking. You know, in G Jewish culture, the Samaritans were despised people. They were near neighbors, but they were considered half-breeds. And there was racism between these two people that oftentimes spilled out into 
clashes that were violent and sometimes even war. At one point, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I want you to go ahead of me and prepare the way so that I can stay in Samaria for a night as we're traveling to Jerusalem. And so when the, his delegates came back and said to Jesus, they, they're not willing to welcome us because we told them that we're heading to Jerusalem, the disciples said, what should we do? Should we call down fire to consume them from heaven? I mean, that was their first recourse. They're like, let's burn them, Jesus. <laughs> and how does Jesus respond? He says, he, he rebuked them for their attitude, for their tribalism. Probably reminding them of an earlier event where he actually went into Samaria because he had an appointment to meet this woman who would then become a believer in him and would spread the message of Jesus' coming to the rest of her people. What about Peter in the book of Acts? After receiving the Holy Spirit, God gave him a vision. He said, I want you to go to the non-Jewish people. You know, and, and during Peter's time, to even step foot into a, Jew, a non-Jewish person's house was to make yourself ritually unclean. This, this mentality was, was ingrained in Jewish people's minds from a, from a very young age. And yet, what does God say? He says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And so he, he rebuked Peter's tribalistic attitude. You know, in many churches today, members are off, often hear calls to insulate themselves from the evil non-Christian world. The same world that God actually says, I want you to go into this world, not to be like it, but to share your lo the, the love of Christ, to be a light in this world. And instead, you see so many Christian churches today viewing the world as encroaching upon them and infecting them with evil, not seeing that evil isn't something that is external, but something that exists within someone's heart. And so you find all these Christian groups that are actually trying to create their own sense of community. They insulate themselves. They become tribalistic. They create their own subculture using their own terminology, their own way of thinking of things. I saw this video recently that I thought was pretty interesting. As a Christian, I understand that I've been taught a specific set of terminology that is not understandable. I'm gonna bring some of these terms to my friends here and see if they know if they can guess what we're talking about. What do you do if you're giving a love offering? Sex, it's sex. Sounds like an orgy. Can be what I initially think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Open your arms to someone? The answer we've come up with is the sign of peace, either a hug or a handshake. Something. Wrong. Damn it. The answer is actually when someone comes to your church as like an evangelist or a preacher and you can't pay them, so you pass around the bucket and you give them a love offering of money. So money equals love. What is happening when <laughs> someone is being washed in the blood? That's oh, it's horrifying. <laughs> Does the water represent Blood in a baptism? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty okay. sure. When you're drunk on wine. Yeah, maybe like abs absolved of I don't know, washed in the blood, that's totally contradictory. I mean, you can't wash something in blood. Baptism. Uh, kind of. We got kind of! Yeah. Washed clean, washed in the blood, because his sacrifice he made for us, it makes us clean. 
If you look at someone and you're not seeing the fruit, what is happening? Oh, okay. clothes on. Oh. You can't see oh, the nuts. fruit of the loins? No, fruit no. of the loins. <laughs> fruit of the loins are children. Why? Why wouldn't you see a fruit? Or maybe they, have, they don't have enough fruit? Fruit, yeah. Then they're a bad egg. Yeah. Oh. oh. They have no God in them. Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you claim to be a Christian and you're murdering someone, you ain't got no fruit. <laughs> right? <laughs> Even if you're not religious, maybe you grow up and hear your your mom or someone saying those words, so you think like everybody knows what that means and you use it, and then people are like, I don't know what they're talking about. Groups have their own lingo and, and language and terms for things because they're inclusive. You know, anyone from the outside is obviously going to you know question those things. I thought that was interesting. Obviously, we're not that you know we don't use those kinds of terms, but I think it's easy to sort of lose touch with culture and to go inward. I mean, that's one of the things that happens, a natural tendency. If we don't fight to maintain love for those who are different from us, love for outsiders, love for people who are non-Christians, the danger is that we become irrelevant. The danger is that we start to view the very world God called us to love as a threat to our community. And so one of the things that we need to do is at each stage, at each generation within our church, we need to teach this ethic that we need to love people who are outside of our community, that God hasn't given us his love so that we can just hoard it to ourselves, but this is something that he wants to give to us so that we can share it with other people as well. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So he tells us that inevitably when you try to love people who are outside of Christian community, that there are going to be occasions where people are not only going to be resistant but actually show hostility. And some of this might be based on misunderstandings, For example, we know that in the early church, there were these reports that people in the Roman Empire believed that Christians were actually guilty of cannibalism and incest. And, you know, if you piece it together, it's probably because they they would hear Christians talk about eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood in reference to communion. And so they thought to themselves, these people are going into their homes Worshiping this God who wants them to eat human flesh and drink human blood. You know, the allegation about incest was probably the fact that they would observe that married people would refer to one another as brother and sister, not realizing the theology of being brothers and sisters in Christ. So there might be some misunderstanding there, but you know, I think when you look at Christian teaching, it is inherently countercultural. And some totalitarian governments are going to view Christianity and its beliefs as a threat to the status quo. Some people who are in the religious minority might view Christianity as a threat to the religious establishment. And so persecution 
has, has been really a part of Christian growth throughout history. And one of the things that we have experienced here in America is inc- incredible peace. That we have religious freedom in a way that most countries throughout the world, even today, have not experienced. And yet, I think that a day is probably coming where we are not going to be the majority group, where we are going to join the rest of the world, the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and have to endure the hostility of the world in which we live. And yet when we face that, Paul says that we shouldn't retaliate, but we should bless. That we should pray for those who revile us, pray for those who show hostility, that we shouldn't show vengeance or retaliate in these cases. He says in verse 17 and 18, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So let's unpack this. I think, first of all, he says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He's not saying that we should be paranoid about how everyone might perceive our actions or our words. But instead, we should make sure that even if people launch accusations against us, that these are accusations that have no basis. That we should live a life that is really one that is um, of good reputation. Also, he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So one of the things that we should aim to do is we should actually try to broker peace wherever we are. After all, what did Jesus say to us in Matthew chapter 5? He says, blessed are those who are peacemakers. So we're ambassadors of peace, and yet He also gives us these qualifications if it's possible and as far as it depends on you because there are going to be some times where even though we try to broker peace, there are going to be people who don't want it. Or there may be cases where reconciliation requires us compromising ourselves morally and we can't do that. He says in verses 19 through 21 in our final verses, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will actually heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So underlying this kind of love that we should show outsiders who revile us or who show hostility or people outside of our community that have wronged us is the fact that we need to be able to forgive. That's really at the heart of Christian love is forgiveness. I mean, that's what Jesus himself demonstrated to us, that love is about self-sacrifice and forgiveness. Now, when we talk about this word forgiveness in Greek, it's the word charizomai. And it comes from the root word charis, which means gift. The idea of forgiveness is to basically let go of the wrongs that somebody has committed to us, to absorb in ourselves, to pay the price ourselves for the acts committed against us. And so it's this idea of giving somebody grace when they have wronged us. 
You know, when we talk about forgiveness, it's really important because if we don't forgive people, if we don't release them from their wrongs, inevitably something that's going to build up in our hearts and fester is this idea of bitterness. You know, often bitterness doesn't harm the person that you're bitter at. You're actually harming yourself. When you harbor bitterness towards somebody, the seething, churning anger that you feel, it creates anxiety, it creates sadness, it creates grief. It damages us and hurts us more than it hurts the person whom we are angry at. Often those people don't even know that we're bitter at them. Also, we'll see that bitterness poisons your spiritual life. That it's impossible to hate somebody in your heart and to also claim that you love God because loving God and loving people are really one and the same. You can't say, I love God, who you don't see, and look at the person who you hate and and just revile them because God says, look, you, you know, if you can't love the person who you do see, then how can you love me who you cannot see? Tim Keller says that all resentment and vengeance is taking on God's role as judge. It's playing God. But only God is actually qualified to be judged since we are imperfect and deserve judgment ourselves. And he also points out that if you can't forgive, it's because you're sure that you're not as sinful as the person that you're mad at. It's actually taking a superior stance and looking your nose down at this person and acting like you're better than them. So it assumes a self-righteous attitude. Now when we talk about forgiveness, it's important for us to define what it isn't. First of all, it's not a feeling. Often our feelings follow the act of forgiveness. What we'll see a lot of times is that depending on the type of wrong that we've experienced, that it actually takes a lot of time where we have to forgive this person over and over again. And there are gonna be cases where we don't feel like we actually forgive this person. We, we feel anger toward them. So it's not necessarily a feeling, it's, it's a choice. Secondly, it's not excusing. It's not saying, well, based on their background, their upbringing, all the things that they've gone through. I mean, I guess they were justified in what they did. I I mean, I guess I could put myself in their shoes and see why they would do that. That doesn't excuse the fact that they made a choice to hurt you or to hurt somebody that you love. And so we're not excusing people's wrongdoing. That's not what forgiveness is. It's also not forgetting. You know, when God says that he will, will remember our sins no longer, it's not like God gets divine amnesia, right? That's not how forgiveness works. It's, you know, when somebody wrongs you, that memory sticks in your mind. And depending on the severity of that injury, you may never forget it. And yet, what we're talking about here is a conscious decision not to constantly nurture those thoughts of bitterness and anger. In God's case, It's that he chooses to no longer look at our wrongdoing, but instead to see Christ and what he's done. And so it's not forgetting in the sense that we have sort of a memory lapse, but instead 
It's a conscious choice to look away from the wrongdoing. Dan Hamilton in his book, Forgiveness, says, forgiveness is to deal with our emotions by sending them away, by denying ourselves the dark pleasure of venting them or fondling them in our minds. You know, that's kind of the way it works. When, when you're angry at somebody, there's just this constant thought about how this person has wronged us. We replay it in our minds over and over again. And sometimes that actually issues in us thinking of ways, the various different great ways that we could actually get back at this person, how we could retaliate. He says, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but only in small sums over a year. They were made whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity, whenever I saw her with another man, whenever I praised her to others. Those were the payments, but she never saw them. Forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. And so going beyond just simply looking away from the wrongdoing, what Dan Hamilton's saying is that it's important for us to actually move in love toward those people. Also, forgiveness is not the same as trust. Just because we forgive somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should pursue them for reconciliation. In some cases, those people are dangerous and we should not put ourselves in that situation. But when we forgive that person, we release them and we release ourselves. Also, it's not the same as reconciliation. In some cases, reconciliation is not appropriate. In some cases, it's not even possible because the, the person who perpetrated that wrongdoing toward you is not even around. Maybe they're not even alive anymore. But nevertheless, it's important for us to release them from their wrongdoing because of what Christ has done and to free us from that burden. You know, the biblical doctrine of God's judgment will one day satisfy our need for justice. You know, one of the questions that comes up is, how can we have a strong ethic of justice and yet decide to let people off the hook? The answer is God's judgment, surprisingly. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian scholar, he actually lived through um, some of the, the conflict that was happening in the Balkans and he saw some very terrible things during that time period of his life. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and he didn't make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that it's illegitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes a quiet, the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that nonviolence comes from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In other words, 
if you've never lived through a conflict like what he did in the Balkans, if you've never seen your family executed, your relatives sexually assaulted, then you wouldn't have a problem with God's divine justice. In fact, that would be the only thing that gives you solace that justice one day will be met and that these perpetrators won't escape that. Now, I think one of the things that we need to consider here is the fact that though God is just, what he calls on us to do is to forgive because first of all, he has forgiven us. You know, that's really at the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is that God has forgiven us for all the things that we've done wrong. You know, if, if you're here tonight and you're new, maybe you're investigating Christianity, I think the main takeaway point for you is this. God loves you. You've done a lot of things that are wrong and have offended him. You deserve his judgment. But in his love, he's decided to forgive you. And God says that we have a unique opportunity to turn our lives over to him and receive forgiveness through what Jesus has done and to experience this freedom from our wrongdoing. But that also has some implications for our life as well. That because God has forgiven us of so much in our lives, the things that we've done, not only in the past, but the things we're currently doing and the things that we're going to do, that that strongly implies that we need to forgive other people as well. And so, yeah, there are going to be people who have done us wrong, who have perpetrated acts of evil against us or our family members. But we can trust that God is a just God. And what we need to figure out and focus on is God's forgiveness toward us and how we can apply that to other people as well. Okay, here you have Romans 12, 9 through 21. Admittedly, God, we are definitely not at the place where uh, we should be, that um, we don't really match this picture that we read about in Romans 12, but it's something that we're striving toward, and we do see genuine love in this community where people are striving to love one another and to love people outside of our community as well. And so I pray that as we grow in our faith in you, as we grow in maturity, that we can become more and more like this picture that you present to us in Romans 12. And um, we thank you that you give us this positive vision of what community could really look like. And I pray that that would be a goal that we would strive toward in the upcoming years and decades as we continue to uh, become conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that in His name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.